Well, friends, let's pray as we turn to hear from God today. Help us, Father, through your Holy Spirit to be like good soil, those who hear the word of God and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Help us now through your spirit, we pray. Amen. I had a terrifying experience a few years ago. I was uh, ticketed, and like everyone who's ever been ticketed by uh, a police officer, I was innocent. I was convinced I was innocent. (laughs) And so I thought, uh, this cannot stand, and I went through all the rigmarole of uh, setting a court date. Uh, Months and months go by, and eventually it's my day to go to traffic court. I really wasn't that concerned because it's traffic court, right? It's not like a criminal court or anything like that. But uh, the problem is, it's one of those uh, situations where your name goes on a list. And so you go and you're waiting. And uh, as you're waiting, you have time to start to worry about how things are going to go. I was okay, but then I'm sitting in court and they're calling person after person up. And I just had time to start to worry about what could happen. Well, I was fairly confident in my case, uh, representing myself, so a little bit overconfident. Uh, the person before me, uh, they call uh, his name, and I'll, they call him up, and uh, it was a little bit more intense than I thought. The judge began to uh, question him. The, I mean, it wasn't just the prosecutor. It was the judge. And the judge starts to get really angry at him. And uh, after a while, I'm there thinking, like, what's happening? Like, am I in the right court? Uh, Because this is way more intense than I thought traffic court would be. Well, it ended up with the judge uh, basically losing it at the guy and calling the bailiff and suspending his license and taking away his car and jailing him. So uh, (laughs) I was there going, whoa. So, you know, the the judge is like, this cannot stand. This is uh, an egregious violation of the law that, you know, we had so many chances. And bailiff, would you come forward? Would you handcuff him? And would you lead him off? And I'm watching him go to the court, uh, being dragged off by the bailiff. And then it's like, okay, next, Daryl Dash. <laughs> I'm thinking, I did not plan on this. Uh, why didn't I, you know, the, those, uh, they always place those right before the uh, traffic court, like call 1-800-GET-HELP. Uh, and it's like, why, what was that number again? I need to call that person for help. I should have hired a lawyer. And I, I stood up at that point, I think, Actually, uh, I made all kinds of mistakes. Uh, Who knew that when you're representing yourself, I had photographic evidence? Who knew that there's a protocol? I mean, I've watched enough TV to know, you know, I'd like to submit evidence uh, A, and it's like, I'm just like, I've got this picture, and it's like, is that in evidence? Anyway, I needed a representative. I needed somebody who was going to help me navigate even traffic court. Uh, And I think I was found guilty, reduced fine. I was just glad not to be in jail at the end of it. But friends, when we are before a judge, we need help. We need help, especially when we stand before a judge and we're guilty. How much more so when we stand before a holy God who is perfect, who can't stand sin in his holiness. And we stand guilty and condemned and uh, revealed as guilty and condemned before him. We need help. And that's exactly what the passage uh, that we're looking at today is going to talk about. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. I love Hebrews. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying it. 
I was a little bit nervous when I started to work through it with you because it's a demanding text. It certainly is asking us to do some hard work and try to understand, you know, how it's also a masterclass in how to understand the Hebrew scriptures and to interpret them in light of Christ. It was written to a group of Christians who were struggling spiritually. Can anybody relate? Can anybody ever say, I've been there? Uh, it was written to a group of Christians who were facing hardship and were tempted to wander from Jesus. Now, a lot of them weren't tempted necessarily to, some of them might have been tempted to deny Jesus, but it seems like some of them were just tempted to drift from Jesus, to begin to take him casually and begin to uh, maybe stop associating with the church as much. And so it was written to a group of people to say, please don't do it for your own sake, for the, the sake of, uh, for what's at stake, stay close to Jesus. And the writer uh, writes this book. I wonder what you would write if you were writing to a group of Christians who were struggling. What would you say? What, what tactics would you use? Well, here, it's interesting what the writer does. He makes uh, a run to the cross. He makes a run to Jesus. And he says to struggling Christians, look at Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Jesus is better. Pause here. <laughs> The number one tactic we need when we're struggling is uh, to get a close look at Jesus again. Uh, when we're beginning to wander, when we're beginning to uh, wobble in our faith, I think we need to learn from Hebrews. Like, what is the first thing we should do? Get back to Jesus. Uh, clear the clutter. That is where we need to begin. And so the author just says, Jesus is better. And he begins to list all the ways that Jesus is better. He's, he's the pinnacle of revelation. Nobody's ever revealed God better than him. Jesus is better than angels. Angels are pretty amazing, but he says Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses and Joshua. They were really high up in, uh, in redemptive history, and Jesus is better, he says. So there's nobody better than Jesus. Don't get too close to the edge. Don't say Jesus is here. How far can I get to, from him and still be safe? Stay close to Jesus. And last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, here's what you missed last week. Last week, he gave us a warning passage. And he said, look, in the Old Testament, the people were, they saw the, the glory of God, and they still missed out on everything they could have enjoyed. We've seen the glory of Jesus, and we're in the same danger. Like, think of the Israelites who saw God deliver them from the Egyptians, and they still missed out. And so he turns to us and he says, we've seen the glory of Jesus Please, we're in the same danger. Don't miss out on him. And so this is where he's been doing so far. Uh, last week was intended to warn us. Uh, and I love this. I, you know, I'm getting to know you. Uh, this week I was talking to somebody and they were just saying how much they appreciate uh, pastors who yell at them. Um, they were just saying, like, they're running, uh, how much, you know, it was motivating. They did the uh, half marathon last year, and the thing that kept them going was they were listening to a preacher who was yelling, you guys are sinful. Like, you guys need to, and they were just saying how motivating it was, and at the end it was like, and Jesus has forgiven you. So last week was kind of a yelling passage, like, guys, don't do it. Now, some of you today are drawn to tenderness and encouragement, and today this passage, having warned, today this passage is going to be one of encouragement to us. And so let's look at it. In this passage, Here's the context. Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13, exposes our need here. 
So here's our need. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here's the need where uh, the author begins here. How do you stand before God today? Well, we stand naked and exposed before God. God in his holiness, as uh, we've already prayed today, God is righteous, completely holy. We know that we are not. And God's word is such that it leaves us no place to hide. Uh, if you've been, ever had that experience of uh, just feeling exposed uh, before others, of just feeling embarrassed, maybe you're caught red-handed, you know, uh, it's just an embarrassing situation to be in front of other people knowing that they're seeing you at your worst. What would it feel like to stand before a holy God who's righteous? As Sage Spurgeon says, uh, here's what the word of God does before God. It lays bare our inmost secrets. It discovers to him, to ourselves, what we had not even perceived. You know, can anybody here talk about their weaknesses? Like, is everybody here aware of their weaknesses? We all are, right? Are there things that embarrass you? The word of God actually goes farther. It makes us aware of things we didn't even know about ourselves that are embarrassing. The Christ that is in the word sees everything. So like I felt before that judge, the word of God exposes us before a holy God. Nobody can stand before God's piercing presence. His word exposes us as we are. Everything is revealed. And that's why verse 13 says, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But how do you feel? I feel terrified. We stand before a holy God, and it's almost like the word of God. We stand like, we're like, how can we cover up before a holy God? And Hebrews says, no, you need to understand what, the, what scripture does is actually undresses us. It exposes us completely in our vulnerability and weakness and sin before a holy God. How do you feel about this? I feel terrified. If I can't stand before a traffic judge and feel like I'm okay, how can I stand before a holy God who is righteous and holy? Well, that's what the passage, where the passage begins. And here's what it says. We can stand with confidence, even when we're exposed because of a reason. Because he has given us a representative that makes it okay to stand exposed before a holy God. So I want you to turn to chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to go back to chapter 4. In chapter 5, verse 1, the writer introduces us to the Old Testament priests. What was their job? Their job was to represent the people of Israel before God. And so verses 1 to 4 really list the qualifications of the Hebrew uh, priests who stood before the people and God. And he says there were basically four things Four principles of priesthood that are going to help us as we stand before a holy God. So verse 1, here's the first principle of Old Testament priesthood. The priests were chosen from among the people. The priests were chosen from among the people. Verse 1 says this, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So to represent the people, he says, 
They have to be one of the people. In other words, no angel could represent us before God. No other creature other than a fellow human being could act on behalf of the people. There has to be a sense of solidarity that this high priest is like us. The, the priest has to be like those that he's called to represent. Second, verse 1 says, This priest had a job to do, which was to offer sacrifices for the people. And so there had to be somebody like us. And verse 1 says, their job is this. They existed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was their whole job. You are a sinner. My job is to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest slaughtered one goat as an offering of the sin of the people. But it was interesting that also took a second goat and confessed all the sins of the people and then sent that goat out into the desert on behalf of the people. And by doing that once a year, the priest was taking action on behalf of the sinful people to represent them before God and saying, God, these are a holy people, but this is a way that you've given us to deal with the sins of your people. The high priest actually uh, sacrificed on behalf of the people. But third, verse 2 says, the high priest had to sympathize with the people. Verse 2 says that this priest could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. You know, the priest wasn't standing as uh, somebody who's above all the people. The priest was standing before God as one of the people, offering sacrifices saying, as these people have sinned, I have sinned. And this sacrifice isn't just for them, it's for me too. The high priest could stand before God. I love the passage in Zechariah where the accuser comes against the high priest and basically says, you know, there was all this procedure of how the high priest had to cleanse himself for days to stand before a holy God. And the accuser shows up and accuses the high priest of being covered in a garment filled with excrement. And so the, it's like it's a big crisis, right? Like, how can I stand before a holy God when I myself am dirty? That is what the whole thing is about. This high priest is one of us, accused before God. And the angel rebukes him and says, uh, there has been provision made for even the sinful high priest. But you know, what he's saying here is, we do not need a harsh, judgmental high priest. We don't need a high priest to get up and say, you bunch of morons, how could you? We need a high priest who can say, I'm one of you. You've sinned, I've sinned against a holy God. We need somebody who understands. And then verse four, the high priest has to be chosen. Verse four says, uh, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. When I meet somebody who wants to be an elder or a pastor, I, I kind of think a couple of things. I think that's great because scripture says, if you aspire to the office of an elder, that's a really good thing. But you know what? I also want to see it tempered with something. When I meet somebody who wants to be an elder, but they say, man, I really aspire to be an elder, but I just feel so unworthy. I feel like, who am I to be an elder? I think that is good. Uh, I really worry when I meet somebody who wants to be a pastor or elder, they aspire to it and they go, I think I got what it takes. Like, man, I, I am so ready. The church is going to be so glad when I'm finally the pastor. They're going to be so blessed by my ministry. I'm like, oh man, you should not be a pastor or an elder. I worry about you. 
And here, I think what it's saying is no high priest could ever say, you know what, sign me up. I'm going to stand before a holy God and represent the people. That person has to be chosen by God. They have to be part of the uh, descendants of Aaron, chosen by God. Priests are not self-selected. They have to be chosen by a holy God to act in this way. And here's what he's saying. Israel needed a high priest because of their sins so that they could stand before holy God. That high priest has to have certain qualifications and do certain things. That high priest has to be one of the people and understand them. They have to be chosen by God in order to carry out this important role. Without a high priest, there's no way that a holy God could dwell among a sinful people. Without a high priest offering sacrifices for the sins of the people, God would just wipe them out in judgment. They needed somebody to represent themselves before God. And God was gracious enough to make this provision. God was gracious enough to turn to the Israelites and say, I'm so committed to you, but the only way that I and my holiness can dwell among you is through the priesthood. I am so committed to you that I've given you these priests and a way to deal with your sins. That is how gracious God is with them. And then what the writer to the Hebrew says is, let me show you how God, gracious God has been to us. Let me show you how gracious, if God was that gracious to Israel, let me show you how gracious God has been to us. Because I have given you an even better high priest than they had. They needed this to stand before a holy God. I've given you something even better so that you can stand before a holy God. Now they didn't know it when they received this letter. This was just before 70 AD. In 70 AD, at this, as far as we know, at this, the time that this letter was written, sacrifices were still being made at the temple. Within a sh very short time, the temple was wiped away. The entire sacrificial system ended. But what they didn't realize is actually the whole sacrificial system had ended actually without them knowing it with the death of Jesus. That Jesus Christ, through his high priestly ministry, had offered an even better sacrifice. And here what he does is he goes through reverse order. And I want you to notice the four qualifications that he gave us. What he does is actually backs them up and goes in reverse order. So here's what he says about Jesus. What was the last one that I said? High priests needed to be chosen by God. They couldn't take it upon themselves. Well, verses 5 and 6 say, Jesus was handpicked by God for this role. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And they says in another place, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And what he's saying is this. I love this. Uh, what he's saying is, you know, the whole thing about Jesus and his ministry there's not one thing that Jesus did on, by his own initiative. Jesus, who was God himself, still was so connected and submitted to his father that he would not take upon himself the role of being our high priest, except God the Father gave it to him. And Jesus said, I, I will do it. I will act as the high priest of the people because you have appointed me as a high priest. And he's, so it's going to be interesting. We're going to get into Melchizedek 
uh, in the new year. Next week we're beginning. I keep punting all the hard topics till later. Um, I've already I've done that. You know, next year we're getting into, ne- we're beginning Advent next week. Later on he's going to develop a whole, what does it mean that Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? What he's basically saying is, um, you know, there was this, uh, he's already said, like, you had to be part of the tribe of Aaron to be a high priest. You know the problem with, if you were going to look at that and say, how does Jesus fit into that? Jesus was not part of the tribe of Aaron. How can Jesus be our great high priest when he's not from the right tribe? And what the author to the Hebrew says is, easy. That Aaron's priesthood began later. There's an older order of priests that we read about in Genesis. There's this guy called Melchizedek who proceeds. He's not part of the tribe of Aaron. He's before that. And he was a, a priest. Jesus is a priest in that order. God made him like that. And therefore, he is able to act as our high priest. Friends, today, in eternity past, Jesus looked at you and me in our need and appointed Jesus. Jesus didn't take upon himself. God the Father appointed Jesus to act on our behalf to represent us to God. Jesus didn't take it on himself. God the Father made it so. He was so concerned with you and me that from eternity past, he appointed his own son to represent us before a holy God. Number two, we needed someone to sympathize with us. And we're looking at that. A priest had to say, I know what it's like to be weak. You and I are looking at Jesus. How could Jesus in eternity past sympathize with us? And the answer is, before Jesus became one of us, he couldn't. He didn't know what it was like to be one of us. But then Jesus became human. And it says in verses 7 and 8, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Friends, have you ever cried out to God with loud cries and tears? I have. There was a period of, I would say it was one year, there was a period of four to five years in our life where the loud cries and tears were almost daily, where we were crying out to God in desperation, in pain for his help. To this day, there's still days where we cry out to God with loud cries and tears. Jesus did the same. When you are at the point of desperation, of crying out where God is all you have, if, if he turns his back on you, you've got nothing left. He's your only hope. Jesus understands that. Jesus was in the place where he cried out with loud cries and tears. Jesus understands what it's like to be desperate. It says he, to him who was able to save him from death, uh, Jesus knows what it's like to be in that point of desperate need. And he was heard because of his reverence. Then it goes on, the amazing words, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. John Stott says, I could never worship a God who didn't know what it was like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Not only did Jesus suffer, but he suffered perfectly. He knows what it's like. He was perfected in his suffering. As George Guthrie says, he graduated from that school and accomplished his mission. Are you suffering? Jesus understands. He is able to represent you before God. Do you realize today, as we suffer, as we go through, as we're weak people, Jesus doesn't turn to us and say, say, I have no idea. Like, I can't relate. I've never been through this before. 
Jesus looks at us and says, I've been there too. I can represent you before God because I can represent you before the Father because I've been there. I know what it's like to be human and desperate. The third qualification of Jesus, the second one that I mentioned earlier, he's going in reverse order. What did priests do? They offered sacrifices to God. And in verses five, uh, verse nine of chapter five, it says that uh, just like priests offered sacrifices to God, Jesus made an even better provision for our sins. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The old priests used to offer animals as sacrifices. At the cross, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And he became the source of eternal salvation through his death. And then finally, priests come from among humanity. As I've said in verse 10, Jesus actually uh, became a high priest because he was human, not after Aaron's tribe, but after Melchizedek's uh, priesthood. Jesus became human so that he could represent us. Just like you had to be from the tribe of uh, Aaron to be a high priest in the Old Testament, Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He became human so that he could become our high priest, uh, even an even better order of priests than Aaron's priests. In other words, friends, hear this today. Jesus is perfectly qualified to represent you before a holy God. Israel's priests we're only pointing forward to Jesus' priesthood. He is the high priest we need. Today, we stand naked and sinful before a holy God. We need a representative. Jesus is that representative, but he's even better than the Old Testament priest. He is the representative that we need. And I want to ask, all of this is good. You know, this is so good, such good news. How should we react to this good news? In chapter 4, verses uh, 14 to 16, the writer says, here's two ways that we need to respond to this good news. And here's the first, friends, hold fast. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Friends, since we have this great high priest, Hold firmly to him. You ever read about uh, somebody who stands for trial and they've got this amazing lawyer and uh, somehow they get it in their head that the lawyer's not doing a good enough job and uh, they fire the lawyer. They decide to represent themselves and uh, then they stand before the judge and they're fumbling away. It's like, why did you fire your lawyer? You needed that lawyer. Don't do that. And what the author is saying Friends, you have a perfect representative before a holy God. Don't ever think that you can move away from him. You need him. Hold firmly to him. Right now, your high priest is in heaven. He is seated at God's right hand. Right now, present tense, at this very second, he is representing you before God. He is our only hope. Stay close to him. Don't even think about turning away from him. He is your only hope. The world is going to give you all kinds of other remedies to deal with your shortcomings. It's going to give you self-help books. It's going to give you other advice. 
It's going to give you alternate approaches to deal with your problems. Ignore all of them. Hold fast to Jesus. As J.C. Ryle says, we're required to hold fast as if our lives depend on it, because they do. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't stray from him and the truth about him. Hold on to him with all your might. There's other, one other thing that it tells us to do, hold fast. Friends, what we come to do today is hold fast. Um, we've sung songs. We've hearing the word of God right now. We're coming to the table. All of these ways are, are things that we do to hold fast to him. There's one other thing we need to do, and that's to draw near, verses 15 to 16. Hold fast, but then draw near. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, I find it very easy to run from God. I especially find it easy to run from God when I'm ashamed. We used to have a dog, his name was Buddy. Once in a while we'd come home and before we even saw what he'd done wrong, we knew he'd done something wrong. You ever come home and sometimes you, if you have a dog, you know what that, they just look, they're hiding in the corner. And uh, you're, you don't even know what they've done, but they're just telling you, I've done something wrong because I'm hiding from you. It is very natural for us in our need to run away from God. It's very, very easy when we've failed holy God to run from him. Our pride and sinful tendencies get in the way of approaching God. I don't know about you, but the very moment that I most need God is the very moment that I'm most tempted to run away from God. Why? Well, I think there's no way God could understand me right now. I'm so ashamed of my sin. I'm so needy right now that I need to turn away from God. But he says here, that is the very opposite of what we need to do. When we are needy, we need to draw near to him. Even in our sin, even in our need. We can run to him in confidence and find that he has everything that we need when we need it. Instead of fear, we can approach his throne with confidence because it's a throne of grace. I love what John Calvin says about the throne. He says, let us draw near to the throne of grace. And John Calvin says this, the glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such is the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds from all fears, the apostle closes the throne of, with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by his sweetness. It's as if he were saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. Friends, today, I want you to hear this. How does God respond to us when we come to him with need? How does God respond when we come to him covered with our own sin? When we turn to the throne of grace? You know, those moments, I, are you like me? When you sin, you almost think that you need to go through some penance before you can run to God. You, you think that maybe God will accept me after I beat myself up or wallowed in misery for a while. I can't run to God right away. And Hebrew says, run, run to, the, run to the throne of grace. He has mercy for you. Friends, today, there's, God has never turned away. His throne of grace has never been closed 
to us in our desperation and need. He has given you a high priest who is perfectly qualified to help. In fact, he knows what you're going through and he invites you to come and he says, when you come, you're not, you're not gonna find anything but exactly what you need in that moment of need. Might be today that you're here, you've been running from God because honestly, you're terrified. You know you can't stand before him. And today he's saying, come. You will find mercy. You will find help. Run to the cross. Because in Jesus, there's everything we need. So friends, Jesus is the representative we need. Hold fast and draw near to him.